Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wash your hands. Do 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 do. Wash your hands. Do 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 do. Wash your hands. Do 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 do. Wash your hands. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly or on this occasion bi-weekly current affairs, pop culture and in the main waffle podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderson and Pandora Sykes. And our two glasses of wine and a beer for CJ. <laughs> it's the freaking weekend. Happy Easter! And it looks probably not unlike your working week. <laughs> the, the situation's probably still the same. Um, I've started a new pretty kooky tradition to stop going mad indoors and I highly recommend it to everyone where for an hour every night... I have a playlist of bangers that I've created called Pandemic at the Disco and <laughs> I dance like a fucking lunatic until I'm Dolly. pouring with sweat and it is so therapeutic. I'm actually going to link to Pandemic at the Disco for all of our listeners. Although I've got to say, it's mainly the bangers for the millennials some of the, there's some tunes for the Gen Xers. Some of our Gen Zers are going to see this very much as a sort of nostalgia club night, rather than a list of uh, bangers from Freshers Week to dance to. But I'm gonna I'm gonna hand it over anyway. Always makes me laugh so much when you're on a really pressured work deadline and you go you know, understandably quite quiet on like WhatsApp or something. And you are, of course, working very hard. One would never suggest otherwise. But you're also doing stuff like creating plays <laughs> called Pandemic at the Disco. I'm the Bishop of Southwark. It's what I do. thought you might enjoy this doll. Madonna put up a picture uh, with a caption about how the pandemic is a great equaliser. And in the picture, she is in a bathtub full of rose petals. Panda, it's not just a picture, it's a video, and I've watched it about 300 times. I've only seen a still. I'm obsessed with it, and she's like, some classical music is playing in the background, and she's doing this, like, weird monologue to herself, being like, I've been thinking about what this pandemic means. Well, she stares into this bath of rose petals. That's the thing about COVID-19, it doesn't care about how rich you are, how famous you are, how funny you are, how smart you are, where you live, how old you are, what amazing stories you can tell. And the reason why I became quite obsessed with watching it on a loop is I have become a little bit of a show off on Twitter. As Pandora first picked up on. Cannot stop fucking tweeting. And I watched the Madonna video to have a little bit of a word with myself. Do you think that that Madonna apparently video, I thought it was a picture, is worse than the video of the celebrities that... I think it was actually the week before last. It was the beginning of lockdown. Um, 
there's that celebrity video of them all singing, that montage. Horrific. Absolutely oh, horrific. Imagine there is no countries It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion too. I love how everyone was like, you have actually bound us all together, but not out of love, out of hatred for this video. I loved Raven Smith posting a still of Jamie Dornan doing the most, like, I think it's the most unhot thing I've ever seen. I don't think I've ever been so turned off by Jamie Dornan doing this like very earnest expression to camera, singing a line of Imagine. And Raven Smith tweeted saying, how can I take my wank back? <laughs> I, know, I saw that. I still love Jamie Dornan. I saw another story that I thought you'd really like, actually, in the week. A story about a woman who was doing the washing up with one of those little yellow washing up sponges. She just couldn't work out why it wasn't cleaning the dishes. And then she realised it was a small block of very stale cheddar. <laughs> That's perfect. What I love is not just this story, because actually one of my best friends did that at my birthday in my 20s. I found her washing up with a giant block of cheddar. But the fact that it made it into the week, I think it really shows that at the moment the news is just completely cleaved in two. It's really serious and it's really, really trivial. And there's nout well, in between. Well, well, do you know what? When you said, when you mentioned the week, I immediately thought, oh God, poor the week. What is the fucking, the week must be they pulling are... its hair out. <laughs> Do you know what? They're doing an incredible job, actually. Given that they're all working remotely, the amount of research that goes into that magazine is so rigorous. Yeah. What it is, is just most of it now, most of the opinion pieces and all of the round-the-world news updates are about corona, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. Um, having read all of the round-the-world updates, I'd actually say that our government are being on the better side of managing this. That's all I'm going to say. Um I also really enjoyed, speaking of the Panny D, as Dolly has now called it, I really enjoyed Hadley Freeman on the death of FOMO. In The Guardian last weekend, she wrote how, you know, no one's getting FOMO anymore when no one's getting out and you're just zooming the, you're zooming the house party to your own homes every night. And it's just such a lovely, um, lyrical piece about, kind of a warming piece about a time that's obviously not very warm, about sitting together with a glass of wine and your laptop or when you're typing at home and someone on a different time zone, you know, pops up on house party or Zoom in the, like, the middle of the night when you're working and it's sort of sunny where they are. It's just a really... There's been lots of, I think, lovely pieces um, from columnists about looking at different areas of lockdown life. India Night always writes about it really well. But I really enjoyed this piece by Hadley. And I put it in my Instagram insights where I've been linking loads of articles. Um, so that's a really lovely one. So the big news from today from me is that my hair is now falling out. Oh no, why? Oh, the post-prego thing. This is, I didn't know about this until I was pregnant. And this is probably one of the most depressing things about three to four months after having a baby is that you may or may not know that during your pregnancy and when you first have the baby, you tend to get quite luscious hair. So look, mine's looking quite bushy at the moment. Yeah, And that gorgeous. is because you... That sounds like that was a real dig for compliments, but thank you very much. Um, and that's because you don't lose any of your hair in your pregnancy, something to do with your hormones. 
And then three to four months afterwards, all that hair you didn't lose that's made you think that suddenly at the age of 33, you've just become, you know, quite thick of hair rather than scraggly and rat's taily like you have been for the rest of your life. That starts falling out and you lose up to 40% of your hair and you lose most it's of it so from your horrible. hairline, which means you get these little horns here, which I've only just grown back. Look, you can see. I've only just yeah. grown them back after Zadie and now they're going to come back again. So I'm feeling a bit sad about that, but no one's going to see me. So um, maybe it doesn't really matter. <laughs> no, I think I think I would find that very, very upsetting. Mother nature giveth and she taketh away. <laughs> Is that from Ecclesiastes 19th, 5th verse? <laughs> There's a clip that I saw on our break, Pandora, that I have wanted to show you for weeks but I've saved it for this specific moment uh, that did the rounds on Twitter of a woman on Mastermind getting a question wrong and it reminded me a lot of when you're informing me of potential topics for the Hilo every week. The 2019 book entitled No One Is Too Small To Make A Difference is a collection of speeches made by a Swedish climate change activist. What's her name? Sharon. <laughs> you really need to watch the actual video because the panic mounting in her face, her eyes get bigger, her ringlets almost start to vibrate with anxiety. Sharon. That's how I feel every week when people tweet me being like, are you going to talk about Kylie Jenner this week? <laughs> <laughs> well, lucky for you that um, things are... Uh, fairly one note in the news. I mean, not lucky for you, obviously. It's grossly depressing. <laughs> Should we go on to some more lovely recommendations for the listeners for the weekend? Let's do it. So I wanted to talk to you about Scenes of a Graphic Nature, which is a book by Caroline O'Donoghue, which is out on the 18th of June. It's Caroline's second novel. And it's about Charlie Reagan, a filmmaker in her late 20s who's feeling restless and lost. Her writing partner and ex-housemate and best friend Laura has moved on with her life. She's got better jobs and a new boyfriend. Her beloved father is dying and she doesn't get on with her mum. When her short film is shortlisted at the Cork Film Festival, she decides to take a trip to Ireland along with a detour to the fictional island of Clippim, the scene of a childhood tragedy from which her father was the only survivor. But what really happened on the island of Clip? Why does no one want her to go there? Calling it a literary thriller isn't quite right. It's sort of like unlike anything I've read before and it tries mm. new things in this bold, really thoughtful way. And I know that you loved this book, um, so I really wanted to know what you thought of it. I loved it. I loved it so much, mainly because it did that thing that all my favourite novelists do who occupy that very particular space between literary and and kind of popular fiction writers like Meg Wallitzer does it David Nichols does it which is she manages to synthesize all those kind of textural literary qualities of vivid atmosphere big themes recurring illustrative motifs really beautiful prose all of that teamed with just a really compelling page turning plot and she also did something else that's so, so hard to do in that novel, which is she wrote about art and she made the art within the art believable and sturdy and well-structured rather than a kind of tokenistic reference. I think it's so hard to care about characters who care about their art unless you make that world within the world really uh, believable and thoughtful, which she did. 
And it also, as well as looking at those kind of very universal themes of friendship and rivalry within friendship, particularly female friendship and love and sexuality, it also explores just such a unique and fascinating story, which, as you mentioned, Pandora, I haven't read about before, which is what is it to live as the sole survivor of a large-scale national tragedy? What is the impact of that experience on a person? What trauma and responsibilities and grief and guilt do they have to carry for the rest of their lives? I just think it's so brilliant. I was actually quite nervous about reading it because in between writing her first book and her second book, she and I have become quite good friends. So it would have been a little bit of an awkward conversation (laughs) if I hadn't enjoyed it. But I just read it in awe and I felt like it was someone totally in command of their craft who has lots and lots of novels ahead of them. I think it's really, it was actually really interesting to me as well as someone that uh, really enjoys learning about different styles of writing um even if they're ones that you know I would never be able to do I hadn't really read um something that manages to be kind of readable in the I suppose readable in the way that chick lit is that awful you know name for books by uh young women that are compulsive and propulsive Um, but also has this, the mind, her mind has just soared to invent this whole entire backstory, which is almost, I suppose, akin to something like the Dunblane Massacre. But she's invented a whole new island in Ireland, which rings completely true. And then, as you say, she's really lays down the backstory of what it means to be a filmmaker and the film that Charlie has made about the island her father grew up on that she's never visited. Like, the imagination, the depths of that imagination that she has um, plumbed, to use your phrase from earlier. Actually, I think you said plummeted, which is even better. (laughs) Plummeted (laughs) imagination. Um, It's a really original (laughs) book, this. And I I really hope it gets the traction that um, it deserves because... She is a sharp and a thoughtful and a spicy, sometimes dirty little writer. One's Scottish there. We've been recording for a long time now. We've been recording for a long time. Pandora's had four sips of white wine and I'm quite enjoying it. I've barely drunk in a year and I haven't eaten very much. So I can't eat on air because bloody sods complain about me masticating. (laughs) What else have you been enjoying? I am halfway through Bryony Gordon's new memoir, Glorious Rock Bottom, which was meant to be published in May and I think has been rescheduled until August. I was very excited about reading this. I love Bryony's memoirs. I love The Wrong Knickers, which is all about her kind of chaotic 20s. And I loved Mad Girl, which was a kind of slightly darker book about her struggles with mental illness. And I actually think this one is my favourite of any of her books that she's written. I can't reveal too much about the story because it's embargoed. But what I will say is it's about her journey to sobriety and her experiences of alcoholism. But it's written from the depths in every sense, as the title suggests, from the depths of despair, from the depths of experience, from from the depths of her soul. She doesn't spare any shocking details. She doesn't avoid describing the darkest hours of her illness she really really holds herself very accountable to her actions and explores what addiction 
has really been like to live with, not just for her, but for those around her who love her. And it's just quite an astonishing read. And as ever, I just really, really admire her ability to examine herself so rigorously and so unsparingly, but with ultimately a, a very deep sense of compassion and forgiveness. And I just think it's such an act of service to offer that process up publicly for others to uh, identify with or to learn from. I really admire her. It's incredibly brave writing. It's always been her leitmotif. And some of you might not have even read Brani. You might know her from her work um, around mental health awareness. She famously interviewed um, Prince Harry when he started Heads Together with William. And it got like vast traction, that interview, didn't it? It opened up a whole conversation about... um, about really about actually the royal family learning to modernise and mm. learning that mm. they needed to be a part of these kind of conversations. So Brani's done a lot of wonderful stuff and I think I think it's very brave to write about what uh sounds like lots of troubling moments in her in her life and revisiting them and also laying them bare for everyone is extremely brave. Another memoir I also loved was Your Voice in My Head by Emma Forrest, which I read on our break and yeah, as I say, I just absolutely adored. It's a story about what was my kind of worst nightmare uh, for a while in my late 20s, which was when I first went into therapy, I remember I would go in week on week and have these incredibly honest and searching and sometimes kind of quite traumatizing conversations that really delved into my past with this one person and I was telling her things that I'd never told anyone in my entire life and I remember thinking oh my god what would happen if she died what would happen if she disappeared and all this kind of healing and understanding and joining the dots that we've done together. She's the only person who knows all this stuff about me. All of that would go with her. And I remember saying that to her in a session and her very unhelpfully saying to me, yes, it happens all the time. <laughs> um, but the reason I was initially drawn to this book is this is a is an account of, of, of what happens when that happens. So Emma Forrest has this incredibly important relationship with a therapist who helps her through a number of really debilitating mental health issues that she that she experiences in young adulthood. Uh, and he sounds like a really kind of remarkable, pioneering, amazing doctor. And then he dies quite suddenly. And it's the story of how she kind of tried to connect to him or feel close to him after he was gone uh, by speaking to his family and reading about other patients and their experiences with him. But there's so much else in it as well. There are stories of her various relationships and all their beauty and dysfunction. The main love story being a wildly compelling account of her falling in love with a major Hollywood actor who I'm not going to name because it's tacky and also uh, it's sort of the least interesting thing about the book um, and you can find out yourself uh, but actually the thing that's really interesting is how she describes and analyzes him and his behavior and also his celebrity to an extent and that's the thing that that makes that story really interesting. She also writes about landscapes in a way that I've 
I've never quite experienced before, both the physical ones of uh, living in London and New York, as well as the kind of landscapes of her mind. And I just, I've never read a memoir quite like it. I wish I had it with me to quote from. Obviously, I came to Devon uh, before I knew I'd be recording the Hilo here, so I don't have a copy to hand. Um, but it just took my breath away. She's a, a true artist and she has a mind that sees things with a kind of kaleidoscopic vision and yet she can report back to her reader and articulate things with just immense clarity and I think the thing I loved most about it is that it's a book about intensity which is something I'm always very interested to read about particularly from a female perspective because it's so shamed I think when women talk about it and therefore it's so underreported those experiences of loving intensely and obsession and the violent pulls of desire and the sharp edges of loneliness and yearning and longing and the kind of magnetism towards oblivion and yeah I'm using too many words now I just totally totally loved it that's really interesting what you say about uh, her wildly famous um lover because that's actually how I came to her writing probably quite a long time ago now would you say like seven eight years ago was that when she first started writing about it um yeah and I found it really interesting the way she wrote about it and at the time he I'm gonna do what you're doing and I'm not gonna give away his name because um it's not the most interesting thing about her writing and why should you have that delicious morsel without buying the book? Um, I think you can probably find it on Google as well. But what I thought was really interesting is at the time he was a much bigger star than he is now. And so reading behind the myth of someone was kind of amazing and it was pretty satisfying because there aren't many very famous Hollywood stars with lovers who happen to be really beautiful writers as well so it felt quite unprecedented yeah totally like to be completely honest it is just like really exhilarating to read about an account of a relationship with a person like that because you just never really get to read those accounts I also wanted to recommend a very special edition of my London you know that page that's at the back of ES magazine yes yes I love that I think it's one of my favourite magazine, like, regular features. It's it's where they interview... It's not necessarily a Londoner. In fact, some of the best ones are with Americans, like big Hollywood stars talking about their favourite things about London. And it's uh, questions about their kind of favourite places in London. And I just think it's such a great feature. And it, they always get good answers from people, even when the person is being dry as fuck. <laughs> but... <laughs> I read, I think, my favourite one of all time, which is with the interior designer and all-round bon viveur, Nikki Haslam, who Pandora and I have talked about on the podcast before. He's one of those people who has this extraordinarily exacting taste about things. But try as hard as I do, even from studying him like an academic subject, I still just can't work out. I can't work out the through line. I cannot work out what it is he likes, what he doesn't like, what he thinks is chic and what isn't chic. So he was asked, where would you recommend for a first date? His answer, in summer, a picnic at dusk in Richmond Park. In winter, an opium den in Wapping. One must be relaxed. <laughs> Last play you saw? Hate the theatre. The sets are always disappointing. I prefer plays on the radio, even Shakespeare. What do you collect? 
pomegranates in any form, china, plaster, metal or real. It's a new passion. <laughs> I did a few my London interviews um, when I interned at ES Magazine and I have actually forgotten the other ones, but I remember doing Ed Westwick, who is that guy oh, yeah. from Gossip Girl. Um, he was really, really... What you not sassy, not spicy, uh, up himself. Yeah, he was quite up himself. <laughs> Everyone fancied him so much, and he became one of those like quite dangerous celebrities who was very in reach. So like he was tinged with Hollywood glamour, and yet he'd also be like hanging about in desperate pubs and clubs in London. So you were always one friend away from shagging him. Like there was definitely a summer where, like, every woman I met claimed to have known someone who'd shagged him. I think he had a bit of a fall from grace a few years ago because I think he uh, was accused of um, assaulting a woman. So yeah. that's probably why you don't see much... You don't see him doing My London interviews anymore. No. Anyway, My London, it's my favourite magazine segment. I look forward to it every week. Vanity Fair is a humdinger this month, Dolly Alderton. Is it? Yeah, I had... I, so I don't know about you, but I had felt like Vanity Fair had slightly lost its vanity fairness a bit. Or, I don't know, the profiles just weren't what they what they used to be. Maybe the New Yorker had got the edge in terms of long reads that are kind of equal part um, gripping and technicolour and equal part sort of academic and rigorous. And Vanity Fair, I just didn't feel like was necessarily what it used to be in that sense and this month there are two absolutely gorgeous pieces which again I don't know if this always happens or if it's just because of this time they are both online in full one of them is a cover interview with Reese Witherspoon by Anne Patchett and I hereby request that all Hollywood interviews are done by novelists particularly Anne Patchett there's something so wonderful about someone who's not a journalist doing an interview. I can't, I don't know. I don't know why it had such a beautiful flavour to it. I mean, Anne Patchett is an acclaimed novelist, for those who don't know. She wrote Bel Canto, that's her most famous book, amongst others. And she has this incredible bookshop in Nashville with its own dogs, Dolly. And they've all got, she's got shop dogs and they've all got little oil paintings in the shop. And it's called Parnassus Books. And it's, you know, really famous in Texas and and in the literary world, and I'm absolutely dying to go. She's got a new book out called The Dutch House, which has been really wonderfully reviewed, which I'd long to read. Anyway, Anne Patchett and Reese Witherspoon both live in Nashville. Well, Reese Witherspoon's second home is in Nashville. And I think the most interesting thing about this interview is whenever I've read an interview before about Reese Witherspoon, it's obviously been about her, you know, glossy Hollywood life. It's slightly interchangeable. You could be reading about... Not Jennifer Lawrence because she doesn't have children, but you could definitely be reading about Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, she's got a lifestyle brand of clothes called Draper James and she's a bit wellnessy and there's just sort of a lot of those similarities. But she's also the most incredible reader and producer and she's created these wonderful opportunities for other women in Hollywood through her buying and producing of Big Little Lies, Wild, Gone Girl... And what I loved is Anne Patchett doesn't do that slightly glossy magazine thing of um, saying, and, you know, you had a little bit of a quiet period, didn't you, for five years? She says, in 2010, 
you know, the world had decided she was over. She was washed up at 36. The New Yorker, in a profile, put her on the scrap heap of old actresses. How did she find her way back? And she talks about her, her, how her and her husband, who's a, a big agent, uh, was a big agent at CAA, they sat down and they basically were like, right, let's take charge of your career. What are you great at? You're great at reading. You're, you know, you're great at storytelling. Let's create the roles that you want. And actually, let's, let's help you create them for other women as well. And I just thought that was a really honest and inspirational thing as well, mm. that she mm. was really not where she wanted to be and had been largely forgotten by Hollywood. And she put herself in a position where she's now probably one of the most influential women in Hollywood, I would say, along with Shonda Rhimes. And in, just in terms of what she's creating. And that doesn't surprise me that that was a strategic move, like where she is in Hollywood now and the power that she has and the roles that she's offering women, that doesn't happen by accident. That's like meticulous planning, I think. She's incredibly intelligent and thoughtful and I am so glad that you you get that from this profile, but it's not it's not pandering, it's not fawning, it's just not, but equally it's not trying to catch the celebrity out. You know, we read a lot of those celebrity interviews where basically you can tell the journalist has just been told to, like, expose all of their ridiculous celebrity peccadilloes. So it's it's neither. It's just a really gorgeous, really good profile. And I just think Anne Patchett is, I mean, I really thought she was a wonderful writer, but she's very good at cover interviews as well. And then in the same issue, there is an absolutely mad interview with James Stunt. He's the ex-husband of Petra Eccleston, who is the daughter of Bernie Eccleston and famously came into four and a half billion on her 18th birthday and bought the most expensive house in the whole of L.A. at 85 million with cash. Uh and she was married to um, James Stunt, who was a billionaire. So he was a billionaire who traded like gold billions. Anyway, they sensationally divorced a couple of years ago and he's no longer allowed to see the children because of behaviour on his part. And in court, he called his father, Bernie Eccleston, a second-hand car salesman, an evil dwarf and a see you next Tuesday. He then got into the most extraordinary situation where he was he's under house arrest for loaning prince charles forged artworks that were actually done by one of the art world's best reproducers called tony tetro and so he had his 200 ferraris and his wine cellar of petrus even though he didn't drink it was the most valued wine cellar in the world taken away from him and he's now under house arrest and he did this absolutely frantic frenetic interview with a Vanity Fair interviewer in his home. And it's just a fascinating and slightly depressing look at what happens when a man is given his own flat and an Amex card age 15. Age 17, a Libyan oil trader in a club asked him if he knew anything about oil. He introduced him to someone, we don't know who, and he made two million. That was what his life was like. It was just constantly improbable and shady. He vehemently denies these claims against him. He says that he was only ever loaning paintings to Prince Charles, so how could it be perjury? It's 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 a fairly strange one. And you the journalist basically just listens to him rant for three hours. But I think it's a it's 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 an incredibly interesting insight into a type of person that a lot of us are slightly fascinated by. 
That's and old school scandal. It's old. It felt old school. I felt like I was reading something in the 90s because normally those type of people don't give interviews. Um, yeah. But he either hasn't got a team that can stop him. And so he's just going absolute hell for leather. It's, I mean, he holds nothing back. Anyway, they're gloriously both online. That doesn't always happen with long reads. I'd like to think that the pandemic's maybe changing that because it's always, I think, a bit of a um, rupture when you can only read something in print. Great to be able to read it online as well. So that is the March issue of Vanity Fair. And if you're wondering why I'm reading the March issue, not the April issue, it's because my newsagent was always a already a couple of weeks behind with its magazines. I think now I'm going to start reading December 2018. And I won't realise till the end of the magazine, because often I never realize, I never do actually realise that I'm reading about last spring. What else have you been enjoying, Doll? I know it's a while since it's been out, but I had to talk about it just because I adored it so much. I loved Little Women. Uh, I saw it twice at the <laughs> cinema. I would have seen it three times, but the Camden Odeon stopped showing it. I, <laughs> you are um, so obsessed with this film. Oh my god, it's so good! It's so good, and I was quite nervous about seeing it because I love Greta Gerwig, and I think everything that she touches turns to magic. I love Little Women as a book; it was one of my favourite books as a little girl, and I adore the mid nineties adaptation uh, with Winona Ryder, one of my favourite films. So there was a lot of pressure on this film. And I just think it was a masterpiece. I think the casting of Timothy Chalamet, obviously, was perfect. Uh, he did that kind of louche, self-destructive, charming, funny Laurie so well. Saoirse Ronan was the perfect Joe. She kind of really captured that kind of scrappy... Um, passion that joe has and the art direction was exquisite the dialogue was so natural um the split timeline took a while to adjust to but on a second viewing um i really appreciated how how clever it was as a as a device and i've since heard greta gerwig say that the reason that it was split into the kind of their girlhood and then their young womanhood and it kind of went back and forth is when you grow up with a woman be it a best friend or a sister you always grow up alongside each other in two different ways you always kind of are living your girlhood together and you never lose that even when you're kind of little old ladies and then you kind of grow together as adults as well so I just think it was astonishingly good and almost as much as I love Little Women I love listening to Greta Gerwig on Script Notes which is an incredible podcast I haven't about heard screen... of that one. Oh, it's so good it's about screenwriting and filmmaking it talks in really granular detail about making films and in Greta's interview she talks really specifically about how she writes dialogue how she formats her scripts how she directs what her kind of rules are on improvisation from her actors, which I 
actually found very interesting that she was she's very transparent about the fact that she doesn't like any kind of improvisation at all from her actors she's very prescriptive about her scripts and I think it's quite refreshing actually to hear a screenwriter be so honest about that she was also really honest about something that I've never heard people who work in tv and film be honest about and I found it very reassuring where in TV and film, you often are given these incredibly, incredibly stringent constrictions on how many pages um, a scene is allowed to be or how much tape you're allowed to get or, you know, the limitations of time are often the thing that are, that's really suffocating on the storytelling. And she said that basically what she would do is hand over a script and then her producers would say, you need to take all this out. You need to cut it by, you need to cut a page or you need to cut it by half. Or we don't need this speech or this is unnecessary. And she said that she just basically would do a version where she shot the original running order for the script. Then she decided in the edit whether she used it or not. Which I think is like kind of bold and brilliant of her to admit and I'm sure must happen and she said 99% of the time when she insists that something is needed and the producer says it's not needed and she shoots it anyway she always ends up putting it back in the edit and on set on the day people don't really notice that she's getting more than what's on the page and she never sort of goes over time so I just found that I don't know. I'm sure some producers and some directors would find that really infuriating as an admission. But I think it says a lot, particularly about the instinct and the ear for dialogue. The clip that I wanted to insert is a clip that I have listened to a few times because uh, I have never heard a female director talk about male actors in this way. And it gets very hacky talking about this thing called the female gaze. But it, it is a kind of useful shorthand to have for a female auteur looking at male actors and showcasing them um, in a kind of subverted way, in a, in a sensual, aesthetic way, in the same way that, that, that male auteurs have been showcasing female actresses, you know, since cinema began. And I loved her talking here about um, how she decided to shoot Timothy Chalamet. Men have put, been putting glasses on hot women forever and telling us they're awkward. I can do whatever I want. I always saw the, the you know, with Laurie and Professor Barrett and with James Norton, who's also very beautiful. And, you know, I, all the men, I, you know, I find Chris Cooper, Tracy Lutz, like they're beautiful men in all, you know, and I thought, you know, the very first time we see Timothy Chalamet, I shot that 48 frames per second. <laughs> I shot that to be slow because I wanted to shoot him like Bo Derek. Yeah. Uh, he's the object. He is the object. And I felt like no one really understood why I'd done that. And actually I felt like no one, no one knew totally at the studio why I'd done that and thought it was kind of goofy and weird and maybe take it out. And then the first time I ever had a screening of the movie in Paramus, New Jersey, I heard every girl in the audience Just. when that go, they went, oh, they did exactly what Amy did. And I was like, cause that's the way we feel about Timothy. I think you just love anyone shooting Timothy Chalamet. Yes, please. <laughs> um, I also want to recommend a banger of an episode of Guys We Fucked. Um, oh, old school. We haven't spoken about that Old school. And do you know, the reason why I'm recommending this particular episode is 
because of its old schooliness. So Guys We Fucked, I'm sure our listeners know because we've been talking about it for years, is one of the kind of biggest female podcasts in the US. It was one of the first podcasts that was pulling in, you know, a quarter of a million listeners a week. They've been going for like six years, I think. It's got real longevity and real loyalty with its listenership. Yeah, my mum's and- a massive fan. <laughs> It's hosted by Corinne Fisher and Christina Hutchinson, who are two uh, New York comedians. And it began as a project for Corinne when she had her heart broken by a long-term boyfriend. And she decided to interview all the men that she'd been involved with, be it one-night stands or uh, long-term romantic partners, to kind of work out her behaviour and her patterns in relationships. And then Christina, her co-host, did the same. So it just started with them interviewing the guys they'd fucked. And over the years, it's become uh, an anti-slut-shaming podcast, a kind of sex-positive podcast, where they talk about all things sexuality and uh, romance and intimacy and monogamy and codependence and everything relating to our romantic and sexual relationships and our sexuality. Uh, they discuss and nothing is is off limits and I love this podcast so much and I've loved it even more since they've made the move to Luminary which is a podcast platform where you have to pay to subscribe but I love being a subscriber to it because they also have Russell Brand's podcast and they also are the home of a great podcast called The C Word hosted by Lena Dunham and Alyssa Bennett, which is an analysis of women who've been called crazy throughout history. I love that podcast. So for me, that fee that I pay for Luminary every month, I'm more than happy to pay. And the move that Guys We Fuck did to Luminary was quite a strategic one because they offered up so much of their personal lives and their personal relationships in uh, their show every week. And I think their listeners slightly, uh, there was a corner of their listenership that slightly started to take that for granted and abuse this kind of trust and this intimacy that Corinne and Christina had offered up to them um, and kind of started feeling like they had an, uh, they had some sort of ownership on their private lives and it was you know following their journey it definitely seemed like a very very difficult time for them as podcast hosts and they really wondered they felt very vulnerable and attacked and they wondered why they were giving up so much of their of their kind of private and personal life so then they made this move to luminary to make it feel a little bit more uh safe and you can really tell in their in their content every week that they feel more relaxed um and I think that the last kind of year of their shows have been brilliant. And the Valentine's Day episode, normally they have a guest on every week, uh, but the Valentine's Day episode, they just did this old school Guys We Fucked format. And it just reminded me of when I discovered them aged, you know, 27, of the two of them getting absolutely hammered in Christina's living room and uh, just kind of shooting the shit with each other. And they're so silly in a way that I find so delicious and charming. And the clip that I wanted to insert is them uh, giving some advice to a listener who'd written in asking whether whether she should fuck her friend's ex. Bitch, no. <laughs> Bitch, no. 
Oh, there she are- went to that guy for flirty right? affirmation after her right? fiance cheated on her and she oh. felt better and had to block this motherfucker. Only man in the world who can make her feel good about herself oh. when her fiance is acting like a fucking cheating piece of shit. Bitch. What is wrong with you? There's like another person. How many billions of people are there on the planet? You Seven. had sparks. Seven. You had sparks because you're wah, 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 all the way home. You it's because it's you're naughty. Not, you're, get right with you. Get right with you and get right with God. Yeah. And God says, don't fuck that guy. And oh if God's God. saying it, just don't. You obviously both want to fuck because it's it's endangered. Yes, yeah, stop doing it. And it's like, look, here's what you need to do. This is what you need to do. You need Take to take a long walk off a short pier. Yeah. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. God, that really is the eternal question, isn't it? Is is the ex of a friend out of bounds? I kind of agree. I think that they're sort of out of bounds. But then life is long. And in 10 years time, will anyone remember how people got together? Do you know what? I am like, I am so baffled that this is ever an eternal question. Like, don't fuck someone who your friend has fucked. It's never, ever been an issue in my group of girlfriends. It's just not even a question that's raised. I don't understand it. It's not, there are so many people in the world that you can sleep with. I don't understand how, how this is a dilemma for people so often. It's so clear to me that you shouldn't sleep with someone your friend slept with. Yeah, but what if they then go on to get married and have children and stay together for a very long time? Because I can think of multiple examples just sitting here right now of when that's happened. See, I just don't, it's not even an option for me of how life could, I just, it's in our group of girlfriends, we've never ever done, I think there's been like two snog crossovers and that's it. I don't know of any examples of, of when that happened. I'm sure, I'm sure it has. I just think that the pain that it, There is, inflict. there is, there's this like, this is from a what an outsider's point of view, there's like six months to a year of it being like sort of agonising hot gossip. And then it just sort of goes away because if they were meant to be together, then that kind of takes over. But I, I, do, I do understand your reservations. I also think that finding the right person might not be for life, might be for five years, 10 years, 15 years, is really hard. And putting people off dibs, I think, means that you might lose out on something wonderful. And you do have to be pretty mature about it. I do I do get that it would be kind of agonising, but I think as you get older, we have to try and remove as many obstacles to people finding someone that they're happy with as possible. And I once went out with him. I just don't know if that cuts it. You know, it probably says something pretty depressing that I would say 99% of my exes now would be like, girl, take him. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of a clunky old segue which i'm very good at speaking of relationships i really enjoyed a book by a debut author called nisha dolan called exciting times which is out on the 16th of april which i do believe is next week i don't even know what day of the week it is yet alone what date but i feel like mid-april <laughs> might be coming up and it centers on three characters um who live in hong kong which was also really interesting because i hadn't read a book about expats in hong kong before you've got julian who is a british banker you've got ava who is an irish language teacher and edith a chinese lawyer 
And from the very first page, I was totally gripped by how dry and sharp and meticulously observed Nisha's writing is. And oh, Dolly, you'll, you'll just love it. And I know I can't say that because when I tell you something's really good, you sort of go the other way. So instead, what I'm going to say <laughs> is the book's mediocre. I don't want you to read it and you shan't have it. There we go. Great, I'll read it tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to read this little bit. This is Julian. This is at the the beginning. This is Julian and Ava who are um, friends who then go on to being something else. Work's busy, Julian said. I barely know what the hell I'm doing. Bankers often said that. The less knowledge they profess, the more they knew and the higher their salary. I asked where he'd lived before Hong Kong and he said he'd read history at Oxford. People who had gone to Oxford would tell you so, even when that wasn't the question. Then, like everyone, he'd gone to the city. Which city? I said. Julian assessed whether women made jokes, decided we did, and laughed. And it's just, it's like that the whole way through. These little vignettes of very normal scenes of them eating, but the amount of commentary that she manages to shoehorn in, you know, there Mm. you've got, you've got comment on people who are privately educated, uh, people who work in bankers, the idea that London is the only city that counts, um, the uh, sort of the passive misogyny of uh, a certain type of man who, you know, has to weigh out whether or not he can find her joke funny. And it's all just delivered with the, I think, the lightest of touch, a, a cynical mm. touch, but the lightest of touch. Now, it's really trite, I know, and it's going to keep happening to say that Irish authors are having a moment. But I think that's what Sally Rooney and Nisha Dolan and Caroline O'Donoghue have in common, is this dry and deadpan, razor-sharp, quite filthy often. The prose is sparse sometimes, but impactful. There's so much conveyed in quite an economy of words. And it's what Holly Williams for The Guardian writes when she was talking about Nisha's book. A calmly articulated self-loathing and a precise capturing of class differences. And I do think that's something we're seeing from a lot of um, young female Irish novelists. To be totally honest, I haven't read enough from young male Irish novelists and I absolutely want to. So I don't know if that might be something I'd sense in there. And I'm sure it's something that people who aren't Irish do as well. But certainly there does seem to be a certain um, a certain feeling. And that's what I and what I can surmise that it is, is this idea that, yeah, fiction doesn't have to be polite. It doesn't have to be rote and that you can be cynical and really provocative without your book being depressing. You know, to be totally honest, I found my year of rest and relaxation by Tessa Moshfeg really depressing. And I found The New Me by Halle Butler really depressing. But I don't find Sally Rooney or Nisha or Caroline's books depressing. And I would say they also look at a lot of the same themes i found the new me and my rest my year of rest and relaxation really depressing as well but i just i just surrendered to feeling catatonic i think for the week that i read those books <laughs> i did really enjoy them don't get me wrong but i think exciting times is it's coming out at such a shitty time for a debut novelist and i keep harping on about this on social media and you know what i'm going to keep harping on about it on the high low because if we have if we're lucky enough to have a platform during the Panny D, then I want people to be pre-ordering and I want people to be buying from debut novelists because fuck, they can't get out there. You know, they can't go do events. They've got very limited ways of selling their wares. And Exciting Times is 
I think, a frankly sensational book to have been written by a 25-year-old. It is so flawlessly executed and it has stayed with me more than normal people, actually. There's, there's, there's high praise. Anyway, I will link to that in the show notes, obviously, as usual, but I'm going to keep on banging on about the show notes until people realise they're there. What about telly, Panda? What telly have you been enjoying? Definitely been enjoying more telly than cinema. I've only actually got to the cinema once in six months, although it was to see a cracker, Queen and Slim. Sensational. Doll, put that on your list. It's one of the most brilliant films I think Ollie and I have seen in recent times. Um, I've heard great things about it. It's... God, it's so languorous and sultry. I, I think you'll actually love it. That's super, super brilliant. Telly, oh, I watched a lot as soon as I'd had my baby. And then I had a bit of that like empty, sick, bingey feeling. So then watched none of it. And now I'm sort of creeping back in again. So at the beginning of this year, I watched Cheer, that docu-series about the um, cheerleading team at an American university. Have you heard of that one? No, literally thought you meant Cheers. No, Cheer is incredible. I think it ended up sort of trending as number one on Netflix. It's about the best collegiate cheerleading team in America. And the dedication, the discipline is not only amazing, like the sort of acrobatics and the strength of it, but also um, so many of these children come from underprivileged and broken homes and they seek a mother figure in the uh, woman who leads the cheer squad, the whatever it's called, the team leader, the team trainer. I'm not good with my sporting terms. Um, and it actually unfurls into something way beyond, I think, what people thought it would be. It's incredibly moving. It's really inspiring just to see how these teenagers have um, put this discipline into their lives as a survival tool. You know, this 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 mother figure and what the what the cheer squad represents to them is has become huge in their lives. So I really recommend that if anyone hasn't watched it yet. I know that it was very popular a little while ago, um, but it's definitely still worth watching, as is Sex Education. Adored this series. I think it's even better than series one. So do I. I thought it was utterly brilliant. I don't even have enough words for how clever I think that was. Laurie Nunn has done such a brilliant job with that. It's it's lush and it's heartfelt and it's optimistic and hopeful, um, whilst at the same time having real jolts of realism. It's, it's how I hope my daughter feels as a teenager, because it's really progressive and it's just... Yeah, it's optimistic, it's hope-filled, and I think it's actually a really good thing to watch right now. Probably a less good thing to watch right now is Don't Fuck With Cats. Did you hear about that one? No, what's that? It's about an internet killer. CJ, I can see your little face. What did you think of this very weird story? It's a true story, Dolliver, of an internet killer who people start... He first becomes famous for posting horrible videos on YouTube of him killing kittens. And... <laughs> A couple of um, American self-styled detectives, they want to find out who this man is. And he starts leaving them clues. And he starts leaving them clues saying he's going to kill a man. And it becomes a race against time. And it's a completely true story. So afterwards, you end up down such a Google hole. And I also watched uh, Love is Blind. That is very strange. I bowed out after three episodes. How long did you guys manage on that? Literally 10 minutes. It's really strange. It's 
People were obsessed with it. But I think because this idea that maybe it was like, it was meant to be quite charming because you would basically sit in these little boxes getting to know someone, never see them. And then when you choose them, you pledge to marry them in 30 days time. Um, But I didn't find it charming because whilst I do think we should have less emphasis on looks, great, I don't think you can agree to marry someone without ever having seen what they look like. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, it's almost like premises for reality TV are just completely fucking mental. Rubbing out. (laughs) It's almost like it's something no one would ever do in real life. (laughs) It's presented by Nick Lachey as well, who used to be married to Jessica Simpson. Ironically, he was in one of the first ever reality shows, Newlyweds, which was, what, like 15 years ago? That is a show that I would like to watch again. I loved that show. Well, this is a very strange show. I did only manage three episodes, but do you know what I liked the most is how chaotic the editing was someone who had left in the previous scene would then pop up in a conversation in the next scene and as cj pointed out there was a man whose sole contribution to the series was one line and that was i'm a virgin (laughs) imagine if you were like guys i've been on the show love is blind like you're gonna see me you're gonna see me dating you're gonna see me hanging out with the bros and then literally all it is is this poor man going i'm a virgin What about you, doll? Um, I wanted to talk to you about Marriage Story. Mm. Delicious. Tell me what you thought. I was quite interested by the response to this, actually. I thought it was a really, really interesting, thoughtful look at marriage. Obviously, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. I did, on occasions, feel like it was a bit overstyled, particularly Scarlett Johansson, it would have been incredible on stage. I'd love to see that on stage. Yeah, Um, that's very true. But it had quite a lot of critique, I think, that it was... Well, some of the critique I thought was quite interesting in that they said there was too much talk of money. Yeah, well, that is divorce. Um, Like Adam Driver. I did like that Adam Driver won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Which is like this really famous grant that like one person a year wins in the US and Adam Driver's character won it and then spent all half a million on his divorce. I think that's what people were just like, wow, the figures. Do you know, are kind of crazy. I didn't mind I didn't mind the money stuff because and I didn't mind the lawyer stuff in terms of its ubiquity because that is so much of what of what divorce is. There's from people that I know who've got divorced is like there's so little time really to grieve or or like process this enormous emotional upheaval so much of it is <clears throat> spending so your whole genius grant is <laughs> is just like numbers and housekeeping I found it really frustrating as a film because I love Noah Baumbach and I love Adam Driver and I love Scarlett Johansson and I think it was so strange to me when I got to the end of it. I was like, that. I basically really didn't like that film and I don't think it was a very good film personally for me. But I think that it had two isolated scenes that were two of the greatest film scenes I've, I've ever watched. So it was like these two sort That's of Oscar-worthy yeah. Yeah, scenes within this like larger story that I thought was pretty, pretty like uncompellingly told. Wait, and stop. The- I have questions. I want to know what these yeah. two scenes were. And I want to know why you didn't think it was a very good film. So the scenes that I thought were just breathtaking were 
the the argument the big argument that happens between them when they're in kind of the the mm. nadir of their divorce proceedings mm. there's an argument that takes place in this very kind of sparse room and that's it, when it felt it, quite stagey i thought actually that's when i was like this should be on a stage in this sparse room with this dialogue yeah yeah since you said that i, I do agree it did feel quite theatrical um but it it actually had like a, f- a physical effect on me watching that argument like everything in my body remembered what it is to get to a point with someone where you have so many complicated feelings towards them and the love that you had for them has turned into something else and you're so angry that your life has been marked by them and you're so regretful of the fact that they have a piece of your history and and they will always be they, you will always have memories with them that you can't wipe. Mm. I, I ha- there, there's a certain feeling that you get in a in a certain type of breakup where you're just like, I just wish you were dead. I just wish there was a way I could erase you from the earth so I don't ever have to think about you again. And it's like the most horrific, horrific feeling that you can have as a human. And it's so confusing when you try and when you try and match that with the fact that this is a person who has been like closer to you and more intimate with you than anyone else in the world. It's just like the biggest mess of feelings. And I've never, ever seen those feelings be dug into in such a truthful way. It was so raw. I was in just like floods of tears throughout the whole thing. It was, it made me feel like quite sick with panic watching them have that argument. And I just, I thought it was masterful. Um, I also think the scene where the social worker comes round to check that he's fit for joint custody of his son, and I won't spoil it for people, but, like, lots of very kind of slapstick things go wrong. Um, I think the (laughs) dramatic tension in that was almost, like, Hitchcockian. It was so, so good. And definitely, when I was watching that, I was like, this happened to him. This must have happened to him. This is too detailed and real for this not to have come from from a real life experience so those were the two scenes that I thought were um worth watch sitting through this film that otherwise I thought was like pretty bad I think she was like I thought that female character was was not very well fleshed out I think I didn't really understand her motivations at all I didn't really understand she uh, was it, you couldn't I, I did think you wouldn't buy that she could be as cruel as she was being with you know the when they were settling into their new lives yeah and how difficult she would sometimes make it for him it didn't ring true with a woman that had stepped back for most of their life like I get that she was stepping forward but there was there was a real there was a real cruelty there which I found very hard to watch and that didn't seem consistent although actually my favorite scene and I think you'll say it was too melodramatic which is why you write for screen and I would write literally like lifetime movies about puppies my You're favorite not scene. About the song are you no I, I can't even remember the song no 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 my favorite was him reading out the list of things to his son oh, no, that, that he loved about his soon-to-be ex-wife. And when they read out that list, I did think, there are so many things you still like about each other. How are you getting divorced when you like about each other? Way more things about happily married people, I know. So again, that made me feel like, this is not your end. This is your beginning. Yeah. 
I don't want to give it away, but Noah Baumbach used that motif in a in a really clever way to kind of structure the film. And in the wrong hands, I think that it could have been seen as like incredibly disingenuous and schmaltzy. But I I thought it was very elegantly done. I really liked that bit. The the thing with the female character, I think you've really hit on something there about how like her cruelty and her like previous behaviour in the marriage didn't make any sense because I just watched that female character. I thought Adam Driver's character, I totally understood all of it. And I watched that female character and I was just like, this psychology doesn't, it's not been built properly of this woman. Like it's like Mm. putting together a jigsaw when you're watching it and there are all these missing pieces. You're like, I just don't, this, I don't get the mind and the motivations of this woman. And I think, and this is not me um, casting aspersions on Noah Baumbach. He said that this is like a, as all his work is, but particularly this is like a highly autobiographical film. Like It basically showed me a man who still doesn't understand why a woman, like it, it struck me as a person who'd written a story about a woman in real life who he still didn't understand. And that's, as I say, not with judgment. If I were to sit and write about so many of my breakups that have caused like horrific pain and I still have these like big questions about them. If I wrote, like, I still don't get why my ex-boyfriend did X, Y, and Z. I still, I don't think I'll ever really be able to understand it no matter how many breakup conversations we had. So if I had to sit and write his character, I'm sure people would watch it and be like, okay, well, the the Dolly character in this, I totally get how she behaved and why she's angry. Don't really understand this bloke. What the fuck is he doing? So that's the thing that was missing, I think, for me, just as a guess as an audience member. I agree with you there. Adam Driver's behaviour, you could understand. It made sense yeah. as a kind of linear trajectory. All of his behaviour made sense, I think, within the character. Whereas she was... Not that she couldn't be many women at once. She absolutely could be. I think we all are. But there was... The behaviour sort of seemed to stem from nowhere. So you couldn't ever really predict in a scene which her you were going to see, which was a very jarring way of experiencing her. And I think... I also wonder... I was thinking a lot about this. I don't know. And this is probably... This is me, because I was re-watching a film I'm very fond of called He's Just Not That Into You. And (laughs) Scott... And Scarlett Johansson comes across, something doesn't quite connect in her acting there either. And I think she just isn't maybe her best playing like an everyday character. I think she's best at like, I don't know. Slightly more abstract ones, like Lost in Translation, she was brilliant at. But maybe that's because that was her first film and you can't ever kind of fake that sort of... Mm. wide-eyed way of looking at the world and now she's playing a mother 20 years on of course she's going to be different but yeah Yeah. I agree that that character didn't quite um connect do you know what it felt like it felt like the writer with the noblest and most compassionate of intentions was desperately trying to work out that woman and he just couldn't I could feel the frustration of the writer not being able to understand her and well, that's interesting in itself, actually. Yeah, but it's it's interesting. It probably would be interesting to read maybe on the page or definitely interesting to hear him talk about. It definitely wasn't interesting for me to, to watch and believe as a, real, as a real relationship. 
In case you're wondering if we are going to discuss Tiger King, a show which comes with an astounding amount of hype, we are going to talk about it next week when I have watched it. I know, I'm behind, but it's impossible to do all the reading and all the watching. So I will be watching that uh, next week, and then Doll and I will be talking. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. During this very weird time and in an absence of diversity of news stories for us to discuss, we have decided to bring back an old favourite segment called Ask the Hilo. Uh, so please do write in with your questions or queries or dilemmas to thehiloshow at gmail.com. So I'm going to kick us off. I've recently been put on the government's furlough scheme and whilst I was really upset at first because I'm a bit of a workaholic, I'm actually really enjoying my newfound free time to practice yoga, learn some French, good on you gal, and let's be honest, binge watch Netflix shows with a bottle of vino. I'm also trying to get started writing that novel I dreamed of getting published at the end of this year. I know, hold for laughter. I was wondering if you had any tips or advice for writing when you suddenly have all the time in the world but not much of a direction or self-discipline. First of all, just definitely take it easy on yourself because I think putting an enormous amount of pressure on yourself uh, will make you feel very nervous and self-conscious and stressed. And that's like the opposite place that you need to be in when you first start a creative project. Um, the, The thing that I would say is good for just giving yourself a big burst of energy Uh, for a new creative project is think of the thing in your novel that you want to write the most. And I think everyone has this when they start a writing project. There's one scene that they want to write the dialogue of. There's one character they want to describe the way that he or she looks. There's one uh, relationship that they uh, want to establish. There's a meeting between two people that they are excited about writing. And wherever that is in your story, you don't need to write in a linear way. Write the thing that you're most excited about writing first, whatever that is. And then once you've got 500 words on the page of the thing you really adored writing and that really interests you and that you really want to kind of explore, from there, in my experience, you'll be off. You'll be, you'll have your energy to just keep going and going. So don't worry about starting from page one. As someone who has not even attempted a line of writing a novel, I'm not sure how helpful I can be in answering your question, but I did just want to say, don't say hold for laughter. Don't feel like you have to apologise for wanting to write something. You shouldn't be ashamed of that. Even if it doesn't come to anything, I think it's a brilliant idea to be trying something new um, trying something creative, something that will hopefully distract you from what's going on. In terms of writing, when you feel like you don't have the self-discipline, definitely relate to that. It's incredibly hard when you have a day yawning ahead of you, your telephone off, you know, you've made all the arrangements to be uninterrupted for 12 hours, but then 
you just see this yawning day ahead of you and you can't think of anything to write. That happens, I think, a lot, regardless of what you're writing. Even as journalists, that can happen. And when that happens, I think you literally have to just get up, go walk around the house or the flat for 15 minutes, light a scented candle, listen to half a podcast, have a snack, get a big glass of water, come back to your desk and try again. You you need to sort of just completely remove yourself from the situation, I think. And also know when to give up. Some days you might not get anywhere at all and then other days you'll be on fire. So if it's something you really want to do, you have to slightly roll with the punches um, and come to it, I think, without, I'm going to quote Love Actually here, hope or agenda. Do you think it's right to look for the love of your life in your early 20s and how do you know if you've met them? Is it better to focus on being independent while being single? I think if at all possible, I mean, I am no relationship guru. I sound like that health advisor who was like landed into answering the question when Matt Hancock just said, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, it was like, what do I do if I've just started dating? And Matt Hancock was like, over to you. And that health advisor was like, oh, I'm suddenly apparently a relationship expert. I think you either move in together or you don't. So I feel slightly like that. Um, I think you have to slightly, not have to, I would say it's probably a good idea to do both, to focus on your independence whilst, if you want to be, keeping your eyes out for love. Doll, you're going to be better at this one than me, I think. I actually want to break a myth that I think is sometimes touted which is that everyone needs to spend their 20s single, either on their own or shagging all of all and sundry. I think for a lot of people, they absolutely need that, not just for their own experiences and experimentation, uh, but for their survival, to, to be able to commit later on in their life. They need to have a period of, you know, walk about and wondering and gathering kind of various stories and having lots of relationships with lots of different people or just not having relationships at all and just focusing on themselves and their friends and their work. Certainly for me, I was never going to be a girl who wanted to commit to someone in their 20s. And that's just that's just my disposition. That's just knowing who I am and what I need and what I search for. I don't think that everyone is like that. And I don't think that variety necessarily means a wealth of experience. You know, I'm someone who I haven't, the longest relationship I was in, I've ever been in was like just over two years. And God, that was 10 years ago I met that man. So I've spent most of my, of the last 10 years on my own. And I don't think... I don't look at someone who met the love of their life when they were 21 and think I'm full of more experience and wisdom than you are because, yes, there are things that I have done that someone who's been in a long-term committed relationship for most of their 20s wouldn't have been able to do. But you know what? There are loads and loads of experiences that are deeply enriching and informing that come from growing up with someone that I, I now I'm never ever going to have. And I don't think I don't think that either is better. And I don't think uh there's a right way to do it. I think you have to look at your soul and your spirit and your desires and do what's right for you. 
I think there's an element as well of when you're searching, I think life can be a bit of a bastard. And when you really, really want something and you're sort of actively going out and hunting for it, it can slightly elude you that sometimes you need to be really being present and being really involved in your life as it is rather than searching something that's not there and then those things can actually become more accessible to you from purely personal experience I genuinely think the relationship with my husband probably only got off the ground because both of us had absolutely no expectations because he was about to go away for five months whereas all my relationships before that I'd been desperate for them to work even though they were all deeply unsuited um so there was a slight irony I think in that but I also agree with Dolly that there's some there's so many interesting myths around that aren't there I remember when we had Bella Mackey on the show and I can't remember whether or not this made the final edit but I when I told her that I'd met my husband when I was 24 and she was like what I think it should be illegal to meet you know someone that you're gonna um spend a long period of time with until your late 20s but actually, I, I had a lot more freedom in that relationship than I had when I was on my own, because for me, the security of that relationship gave me the confidence to be my true self and let my freak flag fly. Um, <laughs> but so, I, you know, it wasn't like I sort of stopped growing up uh, my entire career. And I would say the person I am now has has really really changed since my mid 20s. I am the I think probably the happiest and most represented version of myself now and that is through that relationship. Equally, I don't want to be like but if you're single, you're fucked because absolutely that's not true and a lot of people do um much better growing in that. There's just no there is no right or wrong answer to this but for your present situation I would say be very invested in your single life and your independence foster that independence because you should have independence even if you are in a relationship but if you're wanting to meet someone of course keep those eyes roving absolutely keep keep eyes on the prize sister and do you know what the final thing that I would say on it is as someone who has Been, oh, this is going to make me sound like I'm trying to be this like feather boa wielding dame. But as someone who's like been with a lot of men, <laughs> Samantha Jones, you look quite Samantha Jonesy as well. You're sort of in a like a deep V leotard. <laughs> From someone who's like done a lot of dating and met a lot of people, she's been around, please, guys. She's been around. Please believe me when I say if you meet someone and you get on with them like a best friend and they make you laugh and you fucking love their company and you're a team and you have great sex with them and a gorgeous, gorgeous time. Trust me, that does not, that does not happen often. So if you meet that person, fuck the rules of what you should or shouldn't be doing. And this is the stuff of life. So hold onto them and enjoy it minus the bonking that's me and you babe yeah exactly exactly what a nice note to end on please do keep sending us your questions uh during this strange strange time it's the high low show at gmail.com as i mentioned at the top i've got a pandemic at the disco playlist for all of you and i think we should end from a banger at pandemic at the disco so 
Hit the decks, DJ CJ. Bye-bye. Bye. Everybody jump, 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 jump. Everybody jump, 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 jump.